Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the latest round of subpoenas, with 10 new subpoenas dropped today from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th coup attempt, and speak with Adam Klasfeld, a senior investigative reporter and editor at Law and Crime News, who was previously a reporter for Courthouse News Service. He joins us to discuss his latest article at Law and Crime, January 6th Committee subpoenas John Eastman, Michael Flynn and others to dig into Trump's war room, and the fact that many of the participants in the January 5th meeting in the war room and the December 18th White House Oval Office meeting were pardoned by Trump. Then we'll speak with Kathleen Ballou, a professor of history at the University of Chicago and a leading expert on the white power movement, vigilante violence, and political extremism. She's the author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America, and her latest book, co-authored with Ramon Gutierrez, is A Field Guide to White Supremacy. She joins us to discuss the three strands coalescing around Trump, the QAnon movement, the Stop the Steal movement, and the white supremacy movement. Then finally, we'll examine rising tensions and fears of a military clash on the border between Belarus and Poland, where refugees are being used as pawns by the dictator of Belarus, Lukashenko, who is under severe sanctions from the EU, with the European Commission now accusing him of, quote, an inhuman, gangster-style approach to the migrants. Joining us is David Marples, a distinguished university professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta, and the author of The Lukashenko Phenomenon, Elections Propaganda and the Foundations of Political Authority in Belarus, Prospects for Democracy in Belarus, and his latest book, Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. We will assess Russia's involvement following accusations from Poland's Prime Minister and what can be done to shut down the social media luring of refugees to Belarus and the airlines flying the migrants to Minsk, from the Middle East and North Africa. And before we go to our first guest, while Background Briefing remains a nationally syndicated radio program with a growing national and international audience, we are relying more and more on our online and podcast audience to sustain us for as little as $5 a month to keep this program alive during the critical years ahead in which the fate of American democracy will be decided. For those of you who can, help us keep delivering a daily briefing so those not in a position to contribute at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate can also join in the fight against disinformation, whether it comes from Mar-a-Lago or Moscow. We must win the political warfare battles underway and fight with weaponized facts to save our democracy as we create a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Adam Klasfeld, a senior investigative reporter and managing editor at Law and Crime News, who was previously a reporter for Courthouse News Service, where he covered the Russian probe and international money laundering, among other legal matters. And he has an article at Law and Crime, January the 6th Committee subpoenas John Eastman, Michael Flynn, and others to dig into Trump's war room. Welcome to Background Briefing, Adam Klasfeld. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And we spoke earlier about your latest piece, and now you've had to update it because along with the subpoenas that came out on Monday for for John Eastman, New York City Police Commissioner Bernard Carrick, Bill Stepien, Jason Miller, Angela McCallum, and Michael Flynn, now 10 more were just dropped today that include Nicholas Luna, former body man for President Trump, Molly Michael, assistant to the president, uh, Ben Williamson, Trump's deputy assistant and chief of staff to uh, Mark Meadows, Christopher Little, former Trump White House deputy chief of staff, John McAtee, Trump's White House personnel director, Keith Kellogg, former lieutenant general. Uh, he's advisor to, national security advisor to Vice President Mike Fence, Kaylee McEnany, of course, well-known press secretary, Stephen Miller, considered... <laughs> the dark uh, whisperer, uh, and then Cassidy mm. Hutchison and Ken uh, Kulowski. He was a senior counsel to Jeffrey Clark, who, of course, actually was interviewed by the January the 6th uh, Select Committee, but he didn't say anything. So I guess with all of these subpoenas flying fast and loose here, Adam, isn't the real question here how much Trump and his people will, will engage in delaying tactics 
and hope to string this out until the next election when the Republicans are likely to take the House and the, the first thing that they would do is kill this committee dead. Mm. Well, as you know, uh, Ian, that process is happening already. I mean, earlier there was a hearing with uh, Trump trying to delay and trying to stop the disclosure of documents from the National Archives that were requested from the committee. Now, that hearing did not turn out well for Trump. Uh, the federal judge sharply questioned his lawyers, and Trump, perhaps seeing the writing on the wall, sought a order to hasten the order to get it to an appeal. Uh, so we're still waiting a ruling on that case. The judge essentially told former President Trump yesterday that essentially is not how it works. She will hand down her ruling expeditiously uh, when it happens. But we know that the deadline for that subpoena is coming up very soon and that uh, we will get a ruling sooner or later. And there are a couple of other things in the mix. As you noted, this wave of 10 subpoenas uh, wasn't the first round of subpoenas. There were the six subpoenas to the so-called war room at the Willard Hotel that happened earlier this week. Uh, they were seeking what were reports of the so-called command center uh, just down the street on from the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue, where allies of Trump were said to be there in the days surrounding the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And before that, of course, the other elephant in the room is the a subpoena to Steve Bannon and the contempt of Congress referral that the House of Representatives have now sent to the DOJ. And we're waiting on that. We don't know uh, whether that referral will uh, put some teeth on these subpoenas that the committee is busily handing out. So I think you're right that there is certainly a strategy of trying to delay this and that there's very little doubt that should the GOP regain control of Congress uh, sometime <laughs> following the midterms, that this committee won't have a long shelf life. It will be shut down. Well, we first learned about much of this stuff, particularly went on in the Willard Hotel, the war room on, on January the 5th, the day before, the day that Steve Bannon on his Breitbart podcast said all hell is going to break loose tomorrow from the Woodward and Costa book, Peril. It turned out, of course, that Robert Costa was there at the Willard Hotel that night trying to find out what was happening. And it seemed like a gathering of those who had been pardoned, right, by Trump. Giuliani, oh no, but Giuliani never got a pardon, but yeah. certainly Bernard Carrick got a pardon. And obviously Michael Flynn got a pardon. Carrick and Michael Flynn, um, of course, he's being subpoenaed by the Select Committee because of the December 18th White House Oval Office meeting where he made some extraordinary charges about voting machines and having to bring in the military and all of this stuff that uh, uh, several White House officials described as pure insanity. So, and, and of course, you had also at the Willard Hotel that night, you had... John Eastman, who was staying there, running up some pretty substantial bills. So, uh, and, and I believe Roger Stern was there as well, with protected by the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. So it sounds, sounded like it'd make a great movie, don't you think? <laughs> Our night at the Willard, January the 5th? Well, one uh, hashtag that was spreading on social media once uh, uh, the reports coalesced about the Willard Hotel. Some people uh, tried to popularize the hashtag Willardgate. It does have a certain, particularly since uh, the Willard Hotel was, as you noted, uh, cited in Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's book, Peril, the fact that there was this so-called command center uh, just down the street from the White House in this hotel does have, I, I suppose, the kind of cinematic qualities that you're referring to, but it's definitely clear that the committee is trying to drill deep into it because this came up even before, obviously, they sent these subpoenas to John Eastman, the author of the so-called coup memo, and Michael Flynn and others yesterday. 
But even before then, when they were pursuing Steve Bannon and they were having arguments about the contempt report that they referred to the DOJ, when if you read that contempt report, a lot of it focuses on what happened at the Willard Hotel. And that's where it does mention, as you stated, uh, Roger Stone's appearance there and the post-election conspiracy theorist, Russell Ram Ramsland Jr., uh, who appeared on some of the affidavits as in the so-called Kraken litigation. Uh, as a matter of fact, you'd mentioned uh, Bernard Carrick. Uh, Bernard Carrick was uh, involved in a so-called Fight Back Foundation associated with Lynn Wood. Uh, and that, of course, brings us back to the post-election conspiracy theories and litigation. Now, I should be clear, uh, Carrick's uh, name isn't in with that letter. They don't mention the Lynn Wood Association. Lynn Wood hasn't been subpoenaed in it. But that is another tie to this kind of background of uh, post-election conspiracy theories uh, and this inquiry. Well, it sounds though. I mean, I mentioned that Clark did appear. He was questioned by the select committee, and he apparently wouldn't tell them anything. I don't know what the next step with him is. But Lieutenant General Kellogg, who was uh, Mike Pence's national security advisor, he was there with Trump on January the sixth, and it, I take it they want him as a witness to see what was going on when, when Trump was watching the January the sixth coup attempt unfold. So it's, I don't think there's much doubt about it, is it, Adam, that they're, they're looking at sort of investigative strands that would lead to Trump himself? Well, the committee itself, they titled their release that they're subpoenaing former officials with close ties to the former president. They're making no uh, mistake about that, you know, we. it's not that they just happened to... Uh, subpoena all these people who, whoops, we later discovered they're close to the former president. They're making very clear that they are, they are subpoenaing people uh, who were close to Trump. And uh, you mentioned uh, Kellogg, the letter to him, which I'm looking at right now, uh, talks about how uh, the public reports have revealed in the words of the letter, credible evidence of your involvement in the events within the scope of the select committee's inquiry. They cite a meeting with Trump and Pat Cipollone, during which Trump insisted that former President Pence, quote, needed to send the votes back, end quote, to not certify the election. So they're really drilling down on the details. And so beyond the fact that these subpoenas are issued, the letters themselves give a close view of what they're looking into and how they're using those inquiries to follow leads on their investigation. Well, Adam Claswell, I thank you very much for joining us here this morning, and we'll stay in touch. Obviously, there's a <laughs> this thing is just beginning, and as I mentioned earlier, the real battle will be what the select committee can do about the delaying tactics, um, which clearly are, are the weapon of choice for Trump and his cohorts. Mm. And a lot of that will also depend on, we will see how the uh, DOJ will come down there. They have a referral in and that will determine to some extent uh, how, to what extent they can enforce the subpoenas that they're sending out. Well, thank you, Adam. And again, I've been speaking with Adam Klasfeld, a senior investigative reporter and managing editor at Law and Crime News, who was previously a reporter for the Courthouse News Service. And he has an article at Law and Crime, January the 6th Committee subpoenas John Eastman, Michael Flynn and others to dig into Trump's war room. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing the three strands coalescing around Trump, the QAnon phenomenon, the Stop the Steal movement and the white supremacy movement. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Kathleen Ballou, who's a professor of history at the University of Chicago and a leading expert on the white power movement, vigilante violence and political extremism. She's the author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. And her latest book, co-authored with Raymond Gutierrez, is A Field Guide to White Supremacy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kathleen Ballou. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. And of course, a field guide <laughs> indicates what bird is going out looking into the looking at rare species. How did you come up with that concept in terms of searching out for white supremacists? Well, you know, um, with Bring the War Home, I noticed that a lot of the work I was doing with journalists, with activists, policymakers, and community members alike was sort of giving a basic orientation of what the problem of white supremacy is as understood by scholars and how we might understand it and confront it in its various permutations. So we were looking for a way to think about not only one part of the issue. So my first book would be an example of one part of this, the white power movement, but also a way to think about the other problems. Um, we might think of it as a, a, a board fence, right, where one plank in the fence is racial violence. But we also need to think about the way that our jury instructions work, the way that our legal instruments work. Um, there are in, unequal outcomes across multiple parts of our society, whether or not there is individual racist belief at play. So this guide is trying to understand that whole system of interlocking issues. Well, today we're learning that Republican Representative Paul Gosar posted a photoshopped anime video on his Twitter and Instagram accounts showing him apparently killing Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and attacking President Joe Biden with a sword. He is pretty unashamed, isn't he, about his many appearances before white supremacist forums? I haven't seen this clip yet, but there are many instances where white supremacist groups, um, white power groups, meaning groups that are openly interested in a white ethnostate, have made inroads into our mainstream politics. So this is perhaps one example among many that we should be considering. There was just a report going around that 38 members of elected office are either members of the Oath Keepers or have an affiliation with the Oath Keepers. Now, Oath Keepers is a extra-legal private militia group that is illegal in all 50 states. Legal militias are only in the National Guard and in State Guard units. That was This has been the case since 1903. Um, so the fact that these groups are now making inroads into our politics is, is a matter of concern for everyone. Well, what concerns me, though, uh, Kathleen, is that they're pushing the envelope. They're brazen. They're in your face. And the law enforcement, particularly going all the way up to the top law enforcement officer, the Attorney General of the United States, doesn't seem to be particularly bothered. Is Gosar breaking the law by threatening to, you know, attack Biden with a sword and murder AOC? AOC tweeted out today basically blaming Kevin McCarthy, saying he's not going to do anything about it. But what are the laws here? I mean, the fact that Bannon is completely in criminal contempt of the Congress itself, I know there's a jail cell in the basement of the Congress. I don't know why they're not using it. Do you feel that the white supremacists and their political enablers like Gosar are emboldened, whereas the people that are supposed to protect us from these dangerous people seem pretty feckless. Well, I wouldn't quite go that far because the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security have both officially identified white supremacist extremism, um, domestic violent extremism, as the single greatest threat of terrorism facing the American people. Um, so there are surveillance agencies who are taking this very seriously. The NSA is taking it very seriously. The DOD is beginning to do some serious work here, too. There are all kinds of problems, though, in confronting this. Um, one of them has to do with the sort of mores of elected office and how we expect our congressional representatives to behave and comport themselves, how far we expect a contempt charge to carry. 
Um, I think that this set of questions, though, really gets at a central problem, which is in my first book, I'm looking at the white power movement in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And in that period, one of the things the archive shows us is that they turned to violence against the government and mass casualty violence because they didn't think they could get anywhere with mainstream politics. They thought that door was closed. Um, One activist wrote about this as the time for the ballot has passed. Now is time for the bullet. That's not true anymore. Um, There are certainly groups that are still pushing for guerrilla warfare as the primary method of social change. They're still talking about boogaloo and race war. Um, There's still groups like Adam Waffen in the base that are trying to foment revolution. We still see that in the manifestos. But the door to political change seems to be at the very least cracked, if not all the way open. And so that means we have to think about dual threats to Americans, civilians, and to the United States as a democratic nation. One is the threat of mass casualty attacks and terrorism. And the other is the threat to our democracy, the threat of authoritarian rule. Well, there's no shortage, though, of these far-right radicals joining the political process. And we're just learning now that 10 Republicans who attended and were involved in the January 6th rally just got elected. Two of them got elected to the Virginia House of Delegates uh, on last Tuesday, a week ago, uh, Dave LaRock and John McGuire. And they're totally proud of the fact that they stormed the Capitol. Apparently, there's at least 57 state and local GOP officials have been identified as having attended the January 6th riot. And they're being elected to various council seats and school boards across the country. So there's no deterrent in the political world against, you know, attacking the very foundation of American democracy itself. That's right. I think that our best hope is in democratic institutions and democratic action. And I guess what I mean there is we have to rely both on institutions to do their jobs and we have to rely on people to band together within their communities and across communities to ensure that democracy continues to function. Those are not small things to ask, but I think we really are at a precipice. And again, I'm speaking with Kathleen Ballou, who is a professor of history at the University of Chicago and a leading expert on the white power movement, vigilante violence and political extremism. She's the author of Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. And her latest book co-authored with Ramon Gutierrez is A Field Guide to White Supremacy. So, Kathleen, there was a recent poll done by the Public Religion Institute that found that 30 percent of Republicans feel that violence is somewhat inevitable or necessary, I think is actually the way it was phrased. That's a pretty alarming statistic. And again, is there any deterrence against that? Is there any sense that that's beyond the pale? I mean, I keep reading all the time that within these white power movements, there's lots of discussions about civil war. Is this just sort of musings and bragging uh, and delusions, or uh, are there serious plans out there being made in this clandestine world of white power? Well, the white power movement has been trying to foment civil war since 1983, at least. Um, So that idea is, you know, alarming, but certainly not new. The thing that I think is, is somewhat new and very concerning is this question about how many mainstream Americans have been pulled into this fringe ideology. Um, and we saw some of this. I think, you know, it's it helps to think about January 6th as the collision of three different streams of militant right organizing. It's the collision of QAnon, which is quite new and people don't understand very well how it works, um, with the Trump-based Stop the Steal protesters, which has within it kind of a a range of intensity of activism from people who just wanted to attend a political rally and, 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 you know, exercise their rights to people who were, were interested in breaching the building. And then there's a third stream, which is the organized white power and militant right groups. Um, And those were, you know, that, that last stream is much smaller in number, but those are the people you saw moving through the crowd, wearing tactical gear, 
holding radios, working in coordination, trying to breach the building first, um, approaching the building before Trump was done speaking. Those are the people who have substantial contacts ahead of the event, et cetera. Um, and what we know about those groups is that they immediately after January 6th began targeted campaigns of recruitment into QAnon and Stop the Steal online spaces. So they were interested in using that event as a recruitment action, not just as, for instance, a mass casualty event. In fact, we know it was not supposed to be a mass casualty event. Um, so I think that tells us that the movement sees this as an opportune moment for um, you know, mainstream recruitment and attempts at radicalization. The question is how big that component is. So I, as a historian, I have my doubts about polling, um, and I'm happy to talk to you more about that. I, one of the things is that, as a colleague was telling me yesterday, sometimes people will express something to a pollster on a telephone call as a matter of sort of making a point, but maybe would not you know, they say they'd say that they would encourage violence, but would not themselves actually commit a violent action. Um, so there is this question about the difference between what people say and what people do, right? Um, however, the numbers of people who say that they expect or support violence are very concerning. Um, and they do represent a sort of uptick from, you know, the last big surge of militia and white power activity in the 1990s. Well, as an historian, though, surely you find it troubling that there's an attempt to rewrite history about what happened on January the 6th. We all saw it with our own eyes. The television coverage was pretty widespread. And subsequently to that, all of these videos have been gathered by the FBI as I identified somewhat 650 assailants of the Capitol. And yet you've got, starting with former President Trump, and many others are trying to turn these, I would describe them as traitors, traitors to American democracy, as heroes. And Ashley Babbitt is now being lauded as a, as a martyr. So how do we <laughs> draw the line here between real history and rewritten history that's happening right now? I mean, that it supposedly it was a love fest and it was all done by Antifa. Yeah, which I just to clarify for people listening, there and, and there's no factual basis to support the Antifa stuff at all. I think so. I you know it's it's really an interesting thing to see historical revision work so quickly and so completely in this case. I study historical memory and the moments when after an act like this, you know, that the nation comes to a very different idea of what happened. And there's all kinds of reasons it happens, but. You know, to see it happen in real time this quickly has been incredibly disturbing. I mean, the the thing it makes me think, and I, I know I'm a historian, so of course, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But the thing it makes me think, though, is that the value of getting the history straight and, and doing the work of understanding what happened on January 6th is just that much more important. We have to do that work of understanding what happened and what it meant. Otherwise, we go the way of something like Oklahoma City, where we're walking around with no idea of what that was when it was the largest deliberate mass casualty on American soil between 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. Um, and without that kind of memory, without understanding these legacies, we really cannot organize an appropriate response to this kind of a problem. So given that you've got, what, 650 prosecutions underway, what about, though, the architects, the brains behind this operation, not the brawn? And, and that's where there feels like there's a huge deficit. Now, maybe the January 6th Select Committee in the Congress is starting to look at some of these people that appear to be the brains behind it in the War Room and the Willard Hotel. And now you've got indictments just yesterday of Bernard Carrick and Bill Sipian and Jason Miller and also Michael Flynn, former national security advisor, short-lived as he was, etc. And we already had the indictment of uh, Bannon, who's now being held in contempt of Congress, although, again, he's not arrested. So when are we going to see some of the, the important people behind this? And John Eastman, of course, was another one who was also subpoenaed by this January 6th Select Committee. When are we going to see some of them held held accountable? And will that... Will that make a difference? I don't mean to hop on this, Kathleen, but I just am frustrated that 
this movement that you write about is on a roll, and they haven't been pulled over. And I don't know whether name and sh- naming and shaming is sufficient. I would have thought it's more important that they do some time and end up in orange yeah. jumpsuits. I think that's right. And I think, you know, it's the January 6th case is one of the places where this is getting articulated. But the Sines versus Kessler civil suit in Charlottesville is on right now as well. And that's another place we need to be looking to be sure that justice is carried out. I mean, um, white power activists don't need a huge green light to continue um, this action. And we know that big acquittals have unleashed waves of violent action in the past. Um, We also know that it is incredibly difficult to get convictions for things like seditious conspiracy or conspiracy um, at all for these activists for a number of historical reasons. Um, So, I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm not in the room on either of these cases. My hope is that some of the earlier um, people tried will be providing the evidentiary base for more serious charges against others to come, um, at least in January 6th. And, you know, with Charlottesville, I think it's very important to be paying attention to that trial, which really represents the sort of opening unification moment of much of this activity in the present. So just to go back to what you were saying earlier about the three strains in uh, this movement, it's not just the white power strain, but there's also the QAnon strain and uh, Stop the Steal. Some of the the people that are keeping that alive and, uh, uh, you know, the echo chamber of Fox News, for example, with people like Tucker Carlson. I mean, there is obviously, we had the Nuremberg trials and the top Nazis were held responsible. It's obviously, the, the brown shirts at the street level started out doing a lot of damage, but they were directed and they were motivated by propaganda from somebody like Joseph Goebbels. Well, Mm -hmm. you have identifiable propagandists today, like Tucker Carlson, but I would hold surely Rupert Murdoch more responsible than Tucker Carlson. He runs that network along with Sinclair and these other. So how much is this right-wing echo chamber that motivates and pumps out this delusion and keeps these people hermetically sealed in this bubble where they're immune to facts and evidence, which is, I guess, the only way you can sort of bring them to the light. So I would have thought that that is, those people are culpable. Yeah, I mean, one of the interesting things um, in the field guide is sort of the, the effort to trace out the ways that both direct culpability like that have worked across history and also the ways that indirectly um, different parts of our society, like journalism, like courts, like immigration law, have upheld um, kind of big systems of white supremacy and also created opportunities for racial violence and for uh, racial violence perpetrators to avoid accountability. So for instance, thinking about the way that communication networks have developed the way that conservative talk radio has sort of created a place for some of these ideas to gain a mainstream following. Um, That's exactly the kind of thing we're looking at. Well, just in closing, though, there was some sense a while back, and I don't, maybe it's still alive and well, that the younger generation, I'm sure this would include the students that you teach at the University of Chicago, uh, Kathleen Ballou, uh, sort of post-sexual and post-racial. They don't have the hang-ups of the older generations about race and gender. So is that happening? Or on the other side, it seems like Donald Trump, with his birther movement, was able to sort of bring back racism. It, it went underground, I guess, during the civil rights movement. But then when Trump came along with the birther movement, then seemed to give people permission to be racist again. So it seems like we're Are we in a race between the old guards, uh, revival of racism, and a younger generation's rejection of racism? I mean, I think I teach teach students with viewpoints across the political spectrum, and that's how it should be at a university. I think that, um, you know, um, all ideas and all political viewpoints have a home in a university classroom. Um, There are, of course, generational changes at work here. I think the question is, um, to my mind, less about students' individual belief systems and more about the big demographic transformation of the United States. So 
basically um, whether voting rights can keep up with our demographic transformation or whether the United States will attempt some kind of minority rule via disenfranchisement. Um, and we can see that there are intense attacks on voting, on other kinds of political participation underway. Um, and I think this has to do with the new census numbers, which at least to people in the white power movement reflect a state of emergency about the dwindling white race and the way that they feel overrun and not at home in their own country. Um, what we know is that the United States is becoming a more multiracial place, is becoming a place with more tolerance in many of these directions. Um, and the question is whether our, our democracy can keep up with those changes. Well, Kathleen Ballou, I thank you so much for joining us here today and for your new book, A Field Guide to White Supremacy. Thank you very much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Kathleen Ballou, a professor of history at the University of Chicago and a leading expert on the white power movement, vigilante violence and political extremism. She's the author of Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. And her latest book co-authored with Ramon Gutierrez is A Field Guide to White Supremacy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining rising tensions and fears of a military clash on the border between Belarus and Poland, where refugees are being used as pawns by the dictator of Belarus, Lukashenko. Damn, can't you see it? I know you can feel it. It's all in the air. I can't stand this pressure much longer. Somebody say a prayer. Alabama's got me so upset and Tennessee's made me lose my rest. Everybody knows about Mississippi gone. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Marples, a distinguished university professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta in Canada. He's the author of The Lukashenko Phenomenon, Elections Propaganda and the Foundations of Political Authority in Belarus, Prospects for Democracy in Belarus, and his latest book is Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Marples. Uh, thank you. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And the European Commission are accusing the dictator in Belarus, Lukashenko, of having an, in, quote, an inhuman gangster-style approach to the refugees on the border between Belarus and Poland. And my understanding is that Polish authorities are concerned that the tension is rising to such a degree that something could spark a kind of shooting war, if you will, or at least a military engagement. So what's your reading on that current situation on the border between Belarus and Poland, where refugees have been allowed to come in to fly into Belarus, but then they're being stopped by, by Polish police at the border, and they're stuck in this kind of freezing no-man's land? Yeah, I mean, it seems to be started on social media outlets where there are advertisements to would-be migrants to circumvent the difficult routes through Turkey and, and um, the Middle East and go directly by plane to Belarus, uh, where they are immediately allowed into the country on seven-day visas. And then the Belarusian authorities, uh, often through the military, are transporting these migrants to the border. And then at the border, uh, they confiscate their cell phones so they can't communicate with anyone and just kind of let them loose. And they are then pushed, uh, virtually pushed toward the border. And there seems to be a small area between the official borders where most of them are. There's a huge forest there. The um, Bielabieja forest, which was, you know, a former hunting ground for Soviet leaders. It was where the Soviet Union ended. Actually, this is where the, the treaty forming the Commonwealth of Independent States was signed. And so it's quite a well-known place. But the Polish side uh, is just thick forest. And they're in this forest trying to get through to Poland. And there's no order or anything to it. I mean, there are hundreds of people mainly seem to be Kurds, Syrians, Iraqis, Somalians and others, um, all of them facing pretty dire circumstances in their own countries. Uh, 
and they're using this as a as a route through to the European Union. I mean, they may not want to stop in Poland. They may be heading for Germany, which is also very concerned about the situation. And it seems to be a ruse by Lukashenko, possibly backed by Putin, to sort of get revenge on the EU for for imposing heavy sanctions on Belarus after the fake presidential elections last year. So the situation is pretty dire. And um, even almost as I speak, I see that Latvia has just declared a state of emergency too. So um, the situation is, it, it is a spark plug because I think if there is any firing, um, then it could be two way, both both sides could end up firing on each other. And although Poland is a, a much bigger country than Belarus and better armed, Belarus has the backing of Russia and Russian troops could be deployed there as well very easily as they have been in the past. But in terms of the advertising to lure people from the Middle East and with direct flights, I mean, from direct flights from Baghdad and other Middle Eastern cities, to Belarus, and you're saying the social media has been advertising this. So is this the work of the Belarus KGB or the Russian FSB? I mean, in other words, is this a deliberate policy to use social media to lure these uh, refugees and dump them on the border to put pressure on the EU to take sanctions off Lukashenko? Yeah, I think that's exactly what's happening. And it's something that Lukashenko threatened to do a few months ago and said he was no longer going to stop illegal immigration, drugs or anything else coming through his border and trying to get into the EU. We would simply allow everything to happen. And as I mentioned, I can't think of any other phrase other than a form of revenge for the way the EU has, has regarded the election and treated him. So I think it's a deliberate policy. It's a, a form of hybrid warfare, if you like, using refugees in a very cynical way, um, ruthless way, really, because um, they're losers in, in, in either direction. I mean, they can't really go home. And once they've lost their cell phone, there's no way they can communicate anyway, unless someone chooses to go there and interview them. Um, and they're not they're looking lacking food and they're lacking supplies and it's also getting very cold at night as well and it's not just uh, the would-be refugees they brought the families too so there are young children uh, there in the camps you know living in tents close to the border and already quite a few have died I think the last number I saw was about 12 died so far but that number is going to get higher so it's going to be a human catastrophe on top of a, a political ploy. I can't really think of any other word to describe it. It's, um, you know, it's a, it's a way really that has been carefully planned, uh, probably with consult some consultation with Russia, I would think. But I think it's typical of Lukashenko and his KGB that this would be the sort of tactics they would use. And they don't really care about human lives. You know, that's not their first concern. They're there for survival, to embarrass the European Union, to make life as difficult as possible for the neighboring countries of the EU, which have no relations at all now with, with Belarus. Well, apparently the, you mentioned Latvia is what, on a state of alert or something. I believe Lithuania as well, as they're sending troops to the borders to stop yes. a flood of refugees coming in from Belarus, right? Is that, so it's happening not just on the Polish border. Yeah, I mean, the only border that seems to be okay is the Ukrainian border. They're not going south. They're all trying to get into the European Union. So the three borders of the north are Poland, which is the biggest border, um, then Lithuania, and then a very smaller part um, to the northeast, the border with Latvia. So, yeah, all three borders are now getting militarized and emergency situations declared. But it's, I think the majority of them are heading towards Poland. That seems to be the quickest way and the most logical way if you're trying to get to Germany. But the Poles aren't letting them in, and that creates a humanitarian problem for the Poles. On the other hand, they don't want to give in to this gangster behavior of Lukashenko. Yeah, it's difficult to say 
from a humanitarian perspective, what the best policy for Poland would be, because you might say, well, it's a country of 40 million people. You're talking about perhaps 30, 40,000 new immigrants, would-be immigrants. Could they manage that? They probably could. But I think it has, you know, the whole process would have to be more carefully monitored. And there are some fears on the Polish side that there may be terrorists among these groups, uh, maybe people that want to cause problems for Poland. Um, it's impossible to tell. But I would say for the most part, you know, th these are probably fairly enterprising people who are looking for the best way to get into Europe and, and away from the situation in their homeland. Uh, I think it's a problem now that's truly international and probably can't be resolved by Poland alone. You know, it's something that the UN might get involved with, uh, probably will have to get involved with, and it certainly has to be on, on a broader scale. Because if it's just between Poland and Belarus, it's going to be very difficult for the Poles. They'll be accused of um, humanitarian crimes or sending people back once they've entered your country is also technically illegal. They're not supposed to do that to refugees, uh, but they are doing it. And, and they obviously are not prepared for, for this happening you know, or what might happen in the future. And it's, everything is so unpredictable. And that is why I think they've taken this hard line, putting the military there, just physically to stop people coming through that border by any means possible. And as a last resort, maybe using lethal weapons. And again, I'm speaking with David Marples, a distinguished university professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta in Canada. He's the author of The Lukashenko Phenomenon, Elections, Propaganda and the Foundations of Political Authority in Belarus, Prospects for Democracy in Belarus, and his latest book is Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. Well, already you've had the Polish Prime Minister on Tuesday before the parliament, addressing the Polish parliament, saying that uh, Russian leader Vladimir Putin, a close ally of Mr. Mr. Lukashenko, has been orchestrating these, or has been involved in orchestrating these waves of refugees. We know that back during the early stages of the Syrian civil war, when Russia entered to rescue the Assad regime, there was a wave of refugees unleashed on Europe to the point where the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe at the time accused Putin of weaponizing refugees. So it is a part of this hybrid warfare playbook. But if you're going to play that sort of horrible game in terms of the inhuman treatment of refugees, you could also cynically sprinkle a few terrorists in there. That wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. No, it's always possible to do that. And how could they possibly be monitored in this kind of chaotic situation where the thousands are coming over or trying to get in there at the same time? You you just can't you can't really deal with that. Um, I'm not sure to what extent Putin is involved with this particular scheme, but there's no question that Putin has given unequivocal support to Lukashenko regime and he's backed it well 100 um, percent and. They work together in many areas of foreign policy. They work together in military security affairs. They do joint military maneuvers. There are two Russian uh, military bases on Belarusian territory, although they're not involved with, with direct threats to Europe. But the two are in close negotiation on almost everything. The problem is that whenever they meet, which is quite frequently and nearly always in Moscow, uh, there are never any uh, materials released as to the nature of the conversation. I mean, they're, they're supposedly signing an official union, a Russia-Belarus union, that would really uh, give Russia control over most areas of Belarusian life, uh, including the military affairs, including foreign policy. But it's not it's not actually been signed yet, as far as we know. Um, so. You know, we don't we can't we can only speculate as to how far Putin is involved in this. Um, he's also involved in various other parts of Europe at the same time. And wherever Russia's gone in the recent past, uh, a problem has remained for years and years. I mean, the same with the Donbass region of Ukraine or breakaway regions of Setia and Abkhazia of Georgia, 
breakaway region of Moldova. So, you know, these are, these are problems created around Europe when Russia gets involved in this kind of, uh, if you like, its home area or its area of influence in the near abroad. But this this also sounds to me like something Lukashenko could conjure up too, given his record of hijacking planes, um, beating up protesters, um, imprisoning people for long, long periods, simply for demonstrating in public or something of that nature. It's a ruthless regime and it's running out of ideas. It's running out of resources. And I think this is just one method to try to reverse the situation, but it's only going to make it worse. I think it's just going to make it worse and it, it's going to push, push Belarus more firmly into the Russian orbit, uh, even more so than it is now. Whereas before 2020, um, you could make a good argument that Belarus is kind of between Russia and the European Union. It's It's got a dialogue with the European Union. It's trading heavily with the European Union. Uh, sanctions have been suspended. All that has now been reversed again. And, and Belarus is back to the worst point, I think, since 2010 after the elections of that year. So it's gone backwards. And the European Commission now is considering extending sanctions to include yeah. third country airlines involved in flying these migrants to Belarus. And these flights apparently are coming into Minsk from Syria, Iran, Qatar and Russia, as well as uh, several North African states. Yes, um, that's right. The, those airlines would also get banned as well, which might actually cut down quite a lot on the traffic, although it wouldn't cut out the Russian the Russian route. I don't think they're going to ban Russian airlines anytime soon. So they could perhaps come to Moscow first and then fly to Minsk from Moscow, which is only about an hour. Um, but, you know, this is this is not necessarily going to stop the whole problem, because I think there's always going to be at the moment a migrant problem, um, a problem of people who are trying to get out of Syria in particular, but also some of the other countries like Iraq as well. And therefore, they're looking for a way. And in the past, as you know, they many of them have tried to get over the Mediterranean and a lot of them drowned in doing that. And then when they got to the uh, EU country, whether it be Italy or wherever, they were not well received there either and often couldn't get in. Um, so, you know, this seemed to be a almost fail-proof route. Um, and several people, I mean, dozens have got into Poland. Some of them are just wandering around, um, trying not to get arrested with the Polish police looking for them. So it's not a very, it's not a very pleasant future for these, for these people. And this refugee problem is one, I think, that is going to be with us for some time. So let's turn a little bit here in the last few minutes, David, to the other flashpoint, this time on the Ukraine-Russian border, where Putin has been massing troops. And we've seen this before, of course, and a great deal of concern. And there was, a, what, a year ago, Russia went on full nuclear alert, as well as putting 100,000 troops on the border. Apparently, they're putting frontline troops on the border, and it's alarmed uh, the CIA to the point where they, the director, who's a veteran diplomat, Burns, went over to Moscow this week and had a phone call with Putin, apparently, a couple of days ago. What do you know about that? And is this another just way to intimidate Ukraine, or could it be a springboard for a real attack? Yeah, my, my personal view has long been that it's inexpedient for Russia to attack Ukraine, um, with the exception of the annexed area of Crimea. And even even with the Donbass, Russia has shown a marked reluctance uh, either to recognize its independence or to annex it outright. It's, it's an economic problem for Russia, a potential economic problem. And I think what Russia is, is doing is sort of intimidation, but it's a little more than that, because many of these um, troops and weapons have been put into place covertly rather than openly like they were last time. And it does seem a little bit more sinister and poses what looks like a threat. But conversely, 
I mean, the U.S. sent two warships into the Black Sea, was it, um, quite recently. I didn't have the exact date for that, but within the past week or so. And Russia was furious about this, but could, couldn't actually do anything about it. Um, earlier, a British warship went the same route and was buzzed by Russian planes and there were threats to to kind of blow it out of the water, but there was no such threat against the U.S. one. So I did wonder also if it might be a reaction to that as well, that Putin was sort of reacting by building up forces, saying if you're going to come into the Black Sea, then we can go back into Ukraine. But I don't think, you know, in terms of logic, it makes much sense for him to do that. I think Russia's always seen it as more safer to simply cause problems, to provide weapons to the pro-Russian separatists in Donbass, keep that war afloat without trying to resolve the situation and reach some kind of political solution. Russia is also pushing things like uh, autonomous status for the Donbass and decentralization of Ukraine as, as policies that, that should be followed. But all this, I think, is treated quite warily by Ukraine, which doesn't see any corresponding withdrawal of weapons and troops by Russia back to the border. I mean, Ukraine has not controlled its own borders um, since March 2014. You know, it's, it's going to be seven years next spring since Ukraine actually had its original borders. And this, I think, is, is how the situation will remain for the time being. I think it's it looks dangerous and it could be dangerous. But my best guess is that probably it won't result in a in a new war in Ukraine. Well, Peshkov, Putin's spokesman, said that the phone call with the CIA director and Putin was also about cyber warfare or mm. cyber security. And uh, I'm assuming that the CIA director would also have brought up the so-called Havana syndrome, where... U.S. diplomats are being targeted by a microwave weapon developed by the Russians. So that probably was on the agenda. But do we have any word from the American side of what was talked about? I, If we do, I, I don't know. Uh, no, I don't. Neither do I. So. Yeah. Uh, well, okay, well, it's a, I just find this so appalling that these poor, desperate people are being used as pawns, freezing in this no-man's land between Poland and uh, Belarus, just because this thug wants to get back at the EU for sanctioning him for being a thug. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, he's it's, not going to change that guy. That's for sure. Tragic. And unless you can cut off, you know, the the air routes to Belarus, then you know this this was likely to continue for the for the time being. I mean, it's, the irony is that um, in two thousand and seventeen. Uh, the Belarusian authorities opened up their border to the EU residents, you know, allowing people to come in without visas to stay for five days. And then that was raised to 30 days, annoying the Russians intensely. And now it's almost reversed. The, the border with Europe is closed, but they opened it to to anybody who wants to come in um, and wants to go to Europe illegally. That's what they're doing. And yeah, it, it is. Um, well, it's human trafficking. I think that's probably the way to describe it. Human trafficking on another level. Well, David Marples, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Yeah, always a pleasure, Ian. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with David Marples, who's a distinguished university professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta in Canada. He's the author of The Lukashenko Phenomenon, Elections, Propaganda, and the Foundations of Political Authority in Belarus and Prospects for Democracy in Belarus. And his latest book is Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, 
please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. Disappeared by half